Whether it's Christmas, Hanukkah, Diwali, Ramadan, Kwanzaa, Chinese New Year, Festivus, or even the winter solstice, whatever you celebrate, I hope that you and yours have a wonderful time. Now, like last year, this episode's going to be about three classic toys. And by classic, I mean before the age of video games. Enjoy the 141st episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Santa Claus. Oh, no, no, I mean Jeff Kelly. Hey, you're all invited to my house for a Christmas dinner Monday night. Oh, wait, I didn't ask Dawn about that yet. It's, it's always best to ask the wife before inviting friends to dinner, you know. I'll tell you what, I'll get back to you, all right? So thank you for everyone who gave me suggestions of what toys I should do on this episode. If I didn't use your idea, don't be downhearted. It wasn't because they were bad. It was probably because there just wasn't a story there. You see, so many of them were memorable toys from my childhood, but well, when I looked into it, uh... Okay, let me give you an example. Many people suggested Barbie. That was one of the first that I looked into, but here's what the story would have been. A lady, Ruth Handler, whose husband was the co-founder of Mattel Toys, came up with the idea of an adult doll for girls. Mattel made the doll, a doll with large pointy breasts, by the way, and they sold millions. End of story. But I think I found three toys that do have interesting stories. Ouija board, and I'll try not to let my skepticism get too annoying, Legos, and Mr. Potato Head. But I do want to thank everybody who made a suggestion. Now you only have 51 weeks to come up with some toys for next year. Well, here in Chicagoland, it looks like we're going to have a cold but not white Christmas. But that's okay because I get to drink hot coffee and tell you three stories of classic toys from my childhood. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. You're moving it. No, I'm not. You're moving it. Spelling something. This is too weird. Go ahead. Ask another. Ask another. Weezy. It's just a game, isn't it? Isn't it? Well, isn't it? Have your brother's kind of fun. The story of Ouija begins on the 12th of April, 1861. That was the start of the American Civil War. Some might argue that it began, well, hundreds or thousands of years before that, with the invention of automatic writing, but for the sake of our story, it began with the Civil War. And the thing is, during this war in the USA, which lasted over four years, in which over a million people died, many young men, spiritualism really took off. 
So many wanted to contact their lost loved ones to see if they were at peace on the other side. That was when people like the Fox sisters, who claimed to be able to communicate with spirits, and photographer William Mumler, who created spirit photography, became huge celebrities and made lots of money. Spirits became known as the voice of reason, a guide for the living. People would ask for advice on money, relationships, health, or anything else they were concerned about. The Fox sisters in particular used knocking sounds from the spirits to create letters and spell out messages. The problem with this and other techniques of the time was it took way too long to get a complete message. The paying subjects who were waiting for a message often became bored or disinterested. To make things simpler, spiritualists began using automatic writing. That's the technique in which the spiritualist would have a pencil and paper. They would go into a trance, let the beans from the other side guide their hand and write out a message. Over time, automatic writing was added by a planchette. A planchette is a French word for a little plank. It's a small, usually heart-shaped flat piece of wood equipped with two wheel casters and a pencil holding aperture. The medium would put the tips of his or her fingers on the planchette and let the spirit guide it. The pencil, which would go through the planchette and touch the paper, would spell out a mysterious message. Now, for the sake of argument, let's say that this whole spiritualism thing was a trick, a scam. And I know Jeff is showing his skeptical side again, but but let's assume this for a moment. If it was fake and the medium was having to move around the planchette by herself, it would be hard to successfully write a legible message. That was the problem they were having. Many times what was written was messy and hard to read. So many spiritualists began looking for better ways to spell things out. All kinds of strange devices were invented, but eventually, around 1886, the simple idea of a talking board was created. These talking boards were not too different from the Ouija boards we know today. These were boards with letters and numbers printed on them, and the words yes or no at the top. Now, the planchette wouldn't have a pencil. It would only have to find the letters or the words yes or no. In most cases, both the medium and customer would place their fingers on the planchette, and suddenly the wood pointer would start moving by itself, or so it seemed. These were so popular, it was only a matter of time before someone found a way to make big money off this concept. On May 28, 1890, businessman Elijah Bond filed a patent for a planchette. The patent was granted on February 10, 1891, and Bond, along with Charles Kennard and William Mulpin, began selling the planchette along with the talking board. The company they formed was called the Kennard Novelty Company. There are a few variations of how the name Ouija came to be. One story goes like this, that Bond and his sister-in-law, Helen Peters, who was a medium herself, were using the board and asked it what the name should be, and it spelled out the name Ouija, which they were told was an ancient Egyptian word meaning good luck. Now, it just so happened that his sister-in-law at the time was wearing a locket with a picture and name of a civil rights activist, Ouida, spelled O-U-I-D-A. And maybe it was that name that was the true inspiration. 
Later in 1901, William Fald, who would later be wrongly credited as the inventor of Ouija, took over the company and told the story that the Ouija name came from a combination of the French and German words for yes. And this became the accepted etymology of the word. But it's most likely not true. Now, there's a strange story of how they were able to actually get their patent. See, they needed to prove that the board actually worked. The chief patent officer wanted a demonstration. He told Elijah Bond and Helen Peters that if the board could accurately spell out his name, which they didn't know, then he would grant them a patent. They put their fingers on the planchette, and yes, letter by letter, they accurately spelled out his name. Whether they knew his name in advance or not is up for debate, but they got their patent. Now, William Fold had been an employee of the Kennard Novelty Company from back when it first started and began buying stock. And apparently, as the company became more successful, as often happens in these situations, things got ugly. You know, money changes everything. And eventually, both Bond and Kennard were out, and Fold began running the business. He changed the company name to the Ouija Novelty Company. And this was under a company that he and his brother formed, the Isaac Fold and Brother Company. Oddly, William Fold and his brother Isaac had a falling out and Isaac left the company. The company was renamed the William Fold Manufacturing Company. But his brother Isaac began manufacturing his own talking board he called Oracle. And this started a series of lawsuits that lasted until 1919. It was Fold who really popularized the board and is known as the father of the Ouija board. Did Fold believe in the power of Ouija? Did he believe in his own product? Well, maybe if he did, he would have foreseen what happened to him on February 24th, 1927. He was supervising the installation of a flagpole on his three-story factory. He was on the roof leaning against a rail when the rail gave way and he fell to the ground. He was on his way to the hospital when a fractured rib pierced his heart and he died. In 1966, the Fold Estate sold the entire business to Parker Brothers. Hasbro purchased the product line in 1991 and continues to hold all trademarks and patents. Many credit the 1973 film The Exorcist as the reason why so many people started to believe that Ouija was something evil rather than a joke or novelty. But in the comments I read in one article about the Ouija board, someone wrote, My Roman Catholic teachers were warning kids about them and spirits or automatic writing experimentation back in the 1950s. This young boy Lego, a whole new world to build. Build hotels, animals, people, boats, skyscrapers, and more. So kids, get your Lego set now at department and toy stores everywhere. Lego, the sensation of Europe, now made in America by Samsonite, who make it better for longer-lasting fun. Legos have changed since I was a kid. When I was young, Lego sets were building sets that inspired imagination. 
There weren't Pacific model kits based on the most popular sci-fi movie. You know, a kit contained a couple hundred blocks of various shapes, a few windows and things, and it was up to the child to turn them into something fun. Not so much anymore. Also, as an adult, I have learned a few things about Legos. One, it's bad for the fingernails to take them apart, and nothing hurts more than stepping on one barefoot as you make your way to the bathroom in the middle of the night. Oh, and I also don't understand Lego movies, but that's my problem. Let's talk Legos. The story begins with a man named Ole Kirk Christensen, who was born in 1891 in the town of Ballard, Denmark. Four years later, the Ballard Woodworking and Carpenter Shop was founded. Now, as a young man, Old Kirk was a carpenter who used his savings to buy the shop in 1916. It was also about the same time he married the daughter of a cheesemaker. Unfortunately, years later, his wife died while giving birth to the couple's fourth child. And then in 1924, two of his kids were playing in the shop when they accidentally burned down his factory and house. Old Kirk, however, turned this tragedy into an opportunity and built himself a larger workshop. To help with the costs, he rented out parts of the factory to others while only using a small portion for himself. But then, during the Great Depression in Denmark during the 1930s, the company was in trouble. They were about to go bankrupt when Old Kirk came up with the idea to sell small, affordable wooden household products such as ladders, ironing boards, stools, Christmas tree stands, and such. When his son, Gottfried, became part of the business, they moved into making small toys like wooden vehicles. These were high-quality toys, and they were making a good, steady profit. They were known for their quality, and a sign on the factory said, Only the best is worthy. Eventually, toys became the company's main focus, and Old Kirk decided he needed a new name. He held a contest with employees to see what they could come up with, offering a bottle of homemade wine as a prize. But it was Old Kirk himself who came up with the name. He combined the words Legat, which is Danish for play well, and came up with Lego. Later, the Lego group discovered that Lego can be loosely interpreted as I put together or I assemble in Latin. Just a coincidence, actually. One of the Lego company's most popular toys was a wooden pull-along duck that opened and closed its beak when pulled. By 1939, the company grew to over 10 employees. In 1942, for the second time, fire burnt down the factory and Old Kirk was forced to rebuild. But by the following year, his company had 40 employees. Now, during the early 1940s, Lego was still making wooden toys when something new began entering the toy market. It was called plastic. In 1947, Old Kirk Christensen purchased an injection molding machine, the first one in Denmark. An injection molding machine is a machine that forces melted plastic into a precise mold. Lego moved into making plastic toys. One of their first was a truck that could be taken apart and reassembled. In 1949, they created something new, a small plastic building block. Similar, but not exactly the same as the Lego building blocks we know today, except it didn't have those little tubes on the inside. Old Kirk gave them a catchy name. He called them automatic binding bricks. Hmm. 
and he would go down through history as the inventor. But here's the thing. When Old Kirk bought the injection molding machine, he received a sample of another plastic product from an English company called Kiddiecraft. It was a small, self-locking building brick. The brick that the Lego company created was almost an exact copy of the Kiddiecraft brick. This brick was the invention of a Mr. Harry Fisher Page. Now, there's a couple of ways to look at this. You can say that the Lego brick was inspired by Kitty Craft, or they stole the idea outright. But before we start pointing fingers at Old Kirk and Lego, accusing them of being thieves, here's the thing. Kitty Craft didn't have a patent in Denmark, so it was legal for Lego to copy the design. And Kitty Craft's bricks were not the first. Other companies had already made interlocking bricks, and those were probably inspired by wooden interlocking bricks that came before. Regardless, it was probably thought as unimportant at the time because both products, Lego and Kitty Craft, were not very successful. At one point, the automatic binding bricks were renamed Lego Merschten or Lego Bricks. And in 1953, the first base plates were created. Now, things for Lego started to really take off in 1958. By this point, old Kirk Christensen had passed on, and his son Gottfried was running the company. It was then that Lego did a complete redesign of the brick. Not only did they use a new, stronger plastic, but more importantly, they added those little plastic tubes in the center of the brick. If you turn a Lego brick upside down, you'll see them two little tubes. What these do is make the connection of the bricks much stronger. Before these tubes, construction was very limited, but now it was possible to build all types of things. It was these Lego bricks that the Lego company patented. And by the late 1950s, injection molding machines had improved so much that Lego was making all types of different parts. And then in 1960, again, a fire swept through the factory. The fire destroyed the wooden toy part of the company, and it was then that Lego decided that it would no longer make wooden toys. These days, Lego is one of the most powerful brands with movies, games, competitions, and six Legoland amusement parks. As of July 2015, 600 billion Lego parts had been manufactured. Oh, one more thing about Legos... They should never actually be called Legos, something that I've done over and over during this story. According to the Lego website, since Lego is a brand name, it must never be used without a descriptive noun after the name. You should never say, I play with Lego. You should say, I play with Lego bricks. Therefore, you should never put an S after Legos. You don't play with Legos. You play with Lego bricks. Take any fruit or vegetable, just stick in eyes, then ears, and then the mouth. You can make the funniest looking people in the whole world. Potato Head people look different every time you make them. Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head with cars and trailers come in one and two dollar sizes. I don't remember the first time I heard about Mr. Potato Head. I was thinking that when the product first hit the market, it must have seemed pretty strange. Mr. Potato Head? What the hell is that? Especially when you think that the original Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head didn't come with a potato. 
It was just a box of pieces that you used with, well, a real potato or carrot or rutabaga, I suppose. Yes, it was basically a fruit and vegetable accessory set. The toy was a brainchild of a Brooklyn-born inventor named George Lerner. The story goes that sometime in the early 1940s, George was watching his wife's nephew, Aaron Brady. Aaron had been pushing sticks into a real potato, using the sticks to give it a face. George Lerner liked this idea and thought it would make a good toy. But there was a problem. You see, the country had just been through World War II, where food rationing was common, and they had been through the Great Depression. So the idea of using food as a toy, even for years later, was considered irresponsible and wasteful. No toy company wanted his idea. He was finally able to convince a food company to give away the plastic face parts as a premium in breakfast cereals. He was paid $5,000, and that might not sound like a lot, but it was in 1951. There were two brothers, Harry and Merrill Hassenfeld, who began a company in 1923 selling scrap textiles, but eventually moved into selling school supplies like pencils, compasses, rulers, and erasers. The Hatzenfeld Brothers Company also moved into selling imaginative kits, like a mailman kit, a cosmetic kit, and even a junior air raid kit. But then when George showed them a box of his fruit and vegetable face parts, they loved it. It was much more fun and silly than anything they had in their current line. They paid the cereal company $2,000 to stop production and bought the rights for $5,000. Lerner was offered an advance of $500 plus 5% royalty in every kit sold. Now, of all the fruits and vegetables out there, the face and body parts seemed to work best on potatoes, so the new toy was dubbed Mr. Potato Head. To promote this new toy, the Hassenfeld brothers did something new and different, something that had never been done before. On April 30th, 1952, they put an advertisement for their new toy on television. By this time, there were already about 8 million TVs in America. So when a voice said, Meet Mr. Potato Head, the most wonderful toy a boy and girl could have, millions of kids ran to their parents asking for the strange new thing. Over 1 million were sold the first year. And like I said, this didn't come with a head. Kids needed to find their own bit of food to shove the pieces into. The original kit came with 30 pieces, including hands, feet, ears, two mouths, two pairs of eyes, two noses, three hats, eyeglasses, a tobacco pipe, and eight pieces of felt that resembled hair. And it only cost 98 cents. Shortly after that, a coupon was added for an additional accessory set, 50 pieces for 50 cents. Along with Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head, there was soon a brother Spud and a sister Yam for a complete Potato Head family. And there were accessories that included a car, a boat, a kitchen set, a stroller, and pets called the Spudettes. But then in the 1960s, toy regulations began to change. For some reason, children's safety became an issue. The bit at the end of the pieces that allowed them to be stuck into produce had to be, well, less sharp, and therefore it became very hard for kids to use them with real food. So in 1964, a plastic potato was added. 
and over time, many of the pieces became larger for safety reasons. In the 1960s, other products were introduced, including Oscar the Orange, Pete the Pepper, Katie the Carrot, and Cookie the Cucumber. Oh, one thing about the Hatzenfeld brothers, they would often use a shortened version of their name. They would shorten it to Hasbro. So in 1968, they officially changed their name to Hasbro Industries. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. A little bit before I go. In my story, I mentioned that I didn't get the Lego movie. I mean, I watched the first one, and I did find it very amusing, but I still didn't get it. And here's why. You see, Lego movies started out years before when amateur filmmakers would animate their Legos with stop-motion animation. You know, take a picture, move the character a little, take another frame, and, well, you get the idea. Short little Lego movies had been going on for years. If you go to archive.org, you can find lots of them. I watched a whole Raiders of the Lost Ark thing done with Legos. It was very amusing. It's a great way for anyone to make a film. You, you have all the actors and sets you need right in your Lego bucket. Of course, Hollywood found this out, so they had to make a Lego movie, but they, they didn't use stop motion. They used 3D animation, which defeats the whole purpose of using Legos, I think. And the thing is, the jokes, in my opinion, would work if they weren't Legos. So what I don't get is, since you're not really animating Legos, and the jokes aren't necessarily dependent on the characters being Lego people, why does it have to be a Lego movie? Why not just a good animated film? Or are you trying to sell Legos? Maybe I missed the point. I, I've been known to do that. But that being said, I did think the Lego movie was entertaining, so why am I blabbering? As for the Ouija board, you may be asking how it works. It's the idea motor response, the same thing that makes water dowsing work. Slight movements in the hand, dictated by the subconscious, makes things happen. It's a very well-established scientific concept. You can look it up. Way back in my past, when I was young and foolish, I did attempt to use a Ouija board to get the winning lottery numbers and it didn't work. As for Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head, that's just goofy. But whatever, now the ending credits. You know what I'm going to say here? We need your money, and you can help by visiting our Patreon page. Just go to psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and look for the Patreon link at the top. And a sincere thank you to all of you who already support the show. Speaking of PsyCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? On the latest episode of Who's Who, it's their 110th show, by the way, Petter and Brecky are into the seventh Doctor, Sylvester McCoy. That means they're almost done with the original series. You can find this and other PsyCon shows at PsyCon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can wish me a happy holiday. I'd like that. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're invited to join. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, 
And I understand, especially this time of year, just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars. That really helps me out. And remember, links to the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, my wife of 33 years for being my wife of 33 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. Happy holidays to everyone. May all your wishes come true. I'll be back in two weeks. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Met a girl from Bean Town. Jeff was always hanging around. She drank tea, but that was okay. She was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. More coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. More coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff.